I'm Anna Wynn, and you're listening to Critical Literary Consumption, a podcast where I ask my guests, who are writers, poets, and scholars, about their reading and writing practices. Some topics I explore are, what is the author responding to? What are the tensions between author, text, and audience? Whose interpretations matter? What could be a miscitation? And how language is used and constructed? My guest today is Elaine Shei Cho, a Taiwanese-American writer from California. A 2017 Rona Jaffe Foundation graduate fellow at NYU and a 2021 NYSCA NYFA Artist Fellow, her short fiction appears in Black Warrior Review, Guernica, Tin House Online, and Plowshares. Disorientation is her first novel. So I read your novel as an institutional novel with, I call it a mystery element. I'm not sure if that's apt. Because academic life and culture are things you're describing and critiquing, I want to hear about your insights on academia and what you called early on in the novel, academic purgatory. Why did you write a novel about academic pursuits and relationships within academia? What experiences are you drawing from in this specific academic zeitgeist? Mm. So part of it is comfort in that When I quit my PhD, that was when I started writing fiction again after seven years. And because I had come just come from academia, that felt like territory where I understood some of it and it was a world I I was familiar with. So I think part of it was just getting my bearings in that way. You know, it wasn't too, didn't feel too foreign or intimidating to approach. And then the other thing is in terms of the plot, It made sense. So I just, I keep trying to figure out exactly why in the very, very beginnings of the novel, when I was just conceiving it, I knew Ingrid was a professor at a university. And in this very early imagining of the novel, she um, gets caught up in a sexual assault case that revolves around her two students. I think this was like, 2016, I think I was very drawn to these stories of sexual assault cases on on universities that kept coming out. And there was one that a student was sexually assaulted at Columbia who carried their mattress for a whole year to signify being raped and having to, to bear that. And I was really moved by that. So I think that's why I was just initially drawn to the university as a space to talk about Ingrid's complicated relationship with white men and her Mm -hmm. attraction to them that she starts to feel disgusted by. So as the novel changed, I guess because I had already come up with this setting, it just sort of stayed there. Like it just, it made sense that when I brought in the Shao and Chao character, who was a, a poet, it made sense that she would be researching him. So, you know, the novel eventually shifted away from sexual assault, but it remained, you know, on this campus. And then, honestly, a lot of sort of the little asides about academia, I mean, I don't think they were my primary concern when I was writing the book. Um, But there were moments where it just felt like, oh, I have thoughts about this. I have something to say. <laughs> so mm-hmm. I would, you know, sneak it in. I felt like even though it's I I didn't 
exactly set out to write, I think, a critique of academia. It really mm-hmm. worked as a setting and a plot device. But, you know, then because I had come from that world, yeah, I definitely did have thoughts about it. Speaking of Ingrid, I really liked her character. And I think I liked her a lot because she fumbles and it's not really clear how she aligns her politics and values until the novel progresses. Like she sees things differently when she's uncovering, I guess, the the mystery aspect of when when she's uncovering things about her dissertation research. Um, I think I especially liked Ingrid because she, she's not the perfect character. She's not all knowing, all encompassing, you know, she makes mistakes along the way. And I, and I feel like a lot of times protagonists kind of already kind of packaged as perfect, you know, but Ingrid wasn't. Mm-hmm. And I really liked that progression. Like when she was analyzing her experiences about her childhood living in a white neighborhood and kind of being consumed by that culture and her classmates, like there mm-hmm. were moments when she acknowledged how she reacted, but it seemed like all those experiences led up to kind of whatever happened towards the end of the novel when she has the big, the big reveal, I guess we would call it. Um, I wanted to ask you why you wrote Ingrid that way and how the other characters played off of Ingrid. So I'm specifically thinking about Vivian. I thought she was really fascinating. What kind of progress did you want readers especially to see from Ingrid and her relationships with others? Yeah. Yeah. So I think initially I always knew Ingrid, the story would be about her social or political awakening. I wanted her to butt up against uh, these desires or beliefs that she's always had. That in a sense was like a big part of the, I guess, plot too, is just her needing to confront parts of herself that she never wanted to confront. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, yeah, she has this progression. I think also it made sense in wanting to poke fun at certain things or comment on certain things. You know, I think it is in a lot way more enjoyable to read about when we see a character discovering it, right? Versus like, I think I've read a couple examples of when the main character in a book is already all knowing, like Mm -hmm. I'm super socially aware Mm -hmm. and here I am with my smart biting commentary on on everything around me and I I find those narrators uh pretty exhausting to live inside because it just comes from this place it starts to read very condescending it starts to feel not very real either because I think all of us have blind spots none of us are all knowing none of us should you know, should even present ourselves as beyond reproach. And so I think it was more enjoyable to have this character who is fumbling and making mistakes. And I think that it made sense. In order to talk about realization she has, we have to see her undergo them versus her just starting the book knowing everything. I feel that would have probably not led to like a story, right? Right being told and I needed the plot basically her discovery of this poet's identity I needed it to coincide with her mm-hmm. discovery you know mm-hmm. social discovery I needed the poet discovery to be so shocking 
that it would finally rip her out of stasis. I had to be shocking, powerful enough to force her to look at things she never wanted to look at. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. And then to your question about her and Vivian, I always knew I needed a Vivian character. So I wrote three different versions of the novel and that sort of character who's very socially aware and an activist and politically engaged manifested in each novel as different. In the first one, actually, it was Ingrid's son. She had a son, like a 20-something-year-old son in college, and, and that was him. And then second version, it was a guy named Jeremy Nguyen, who was sort of like a young a pre-Alex because he's hot and Ingrid is attracted to him. But, mm-hmm. you know, they sort of don't like each other at the same time. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so then finally I landed on Vivian, and I think... It, it was just so important to expose Ingrid's insecurities mm-hmm. by having someone like Vivian around because Vivian is very proud of who she is. She has no qualms, at least at this point in her life, with her identity as Vietnamese American, with the goal she has for herself, what she believes in, what mm-hmm. she understands as right and wrong. Mm-hmm. And I knew a character like that was necessary for Ingrid to for all her feathers to be ruffled, mm-hmm. right? She has to be next near someone like Vivian. So she sort of is pricked in that way that she's like, <laughs> like it, it's sort of startling to her that someone could be so outspoken mm-hmm. and have such agency because she doesn't feel that way in her life. Right. And that way, like, I don't think we could have an Ingrid without Vivian or vice versa. They really need to exist with each other mm-hmm. and I think they both represent you know not to boil it down to just symbolism but in the Asian American community there is a lot of division right and mm-hmm. there's there's a very wide political spectrum so it felt real also to show those different spectrums mm-hmm. and somewhere Eunice was it Eunice, Eunice. Mm-hmm. You- She's somewhere in between, it seems, mm-hmm. between the two characters. So I thought that was a really nice balance. They're very complete. Mm. I don't know if that's the right word. I seem to know each one of them, you know? Like, I know someone in that within my own friends group, but they also seem to want to impress Vivian, too, the two, <laughs> right? Like, that's how For I sure. And, um, <laughs> LA, I, so my partner and I were both in academia, and early on in the book, there's a description of Ingrid. She's kind of narrating her trajectory or her, the point where she's at in her PhD process. And I wasn't sure what to make of her when I first read those pages where you described her as doing research and she's also double dipping. She makes her students do kind of like research for her. And I, I remember reading that out loud to my partner and he's like, she's so Mm -hmm. I I get it because you immediately set up this kind of burnout because she had been in the PhD program for, is it seven years? She's 29. When we meet her, she's starting the eighth year. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, of course, a lot of academics would probably say, oh, that's so terrible. But I I understand the multiplicity of emotions because burnout culture in academia, you know, a lot of people talk about it. And after after I understood Ingrid's story, I didn't I didn't feel like she was a bad character. I just thought that was a funny way of introducing mm. Ingrid's kind of attitude yeah. towards her work and research. 
Right, that she's so checked out. Because also the thing is, she never wanted to research Xiao and Zhao. Yes, yes. I think Uh part of her, she's just driven to desperation. I wanted to show that. And yeah, Mm -hmm. I mean, it's deeply unethical what she does. But Mm -hmm. I recently, well, not recently, but I guess when I was writing, I had learned that professors do this, Mm -hmm. that they will steal from their students. um, Uh especially those that they think aren't going to make anything of themselves mm-hmm. and will often use the the things they assign to sort of get ideas or brains. Yes. And I, when I heard this, I was like, oh my God, that is so evil. Mm-hmm. And yet I can totally see that happening. Like, of yeah. course that would happen. I mean, your book title is Disorientation. So I just thought it was a, it was just a very compelling way to introduce Ingrid because... I think most readers, the reviews at, and then whatever I saw on Twitter, they seem to really care about Ingrid. It was kind of consensus that I saw was um, Ingrid was somewhat frustrating, but you couldn't help but root for her because they mm. understood. So yeah, yeah, I wrote her to be very frustrating, but I do. I <laughs> I am glad when people say that she feels real in that way, and that they want her to get free. What I try to show about Ingrid is like that she just didn't have so much agency in her life that so much of how she acts and what she believes Mm -hmm. in was forced upon her Mm -hmm. in that yeah she she you know grew up in the society that handed her very few options for like this is who you can be as an asian woman and so i wanted to show that ingrid obviously is responsible for her actions but so much of what she does is dictated by this white supremacist society, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And she was abandoned by her, was she already her supervisor when she switched departments? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah she yeah. like so. kind of, well, she asked, was it Judith? Yeah, she yeah. asked um, Judith to be her advisor and she said mm-hmm. oh i'm leaving so yeah. she wasn't officially her advisor but she right. asked her yeah. yeah i know that feeling very well <laughs> <laughs> so maybe in thinking more about ingrid's somewhat turbulent relationship with vivian i'm reminded by something wakey wong who was a previous guest wrote in her her most recent novel joan is okay Somewhere in the book, Joan observes that being in school feels like a race and asian students are often pitted against each other do you see that kind of dynamic between Ingrid and Vivian? I think it's in Ingrid's head. Okay. <laughs> I think when we meet Vivian, Vivian is like, literally, who are you? Mm-hmm. She doesn't even really register Ingrid because she's so on her path. Or, you know, I think she she registers Ingrid in sort of a, uh, you're like one of those Asians who is not down for the cause. And so... I barely acknowledge you, your mm-hmm. existence. And then for Ingrid, she has this very dramatized, built up competition with Vivian mm-hmm. in her head because I think she feels very insecure about this idea of scarcity, right? Like there can only be one of us, especially because they're both writing on Chow, this idea that I must be the one. But I think in a scarcity, model of the world often marginalized people can be pitted against each other Mm -hmm. because there's this idea that 
if you're trying to aspire to white supremacy or power as they define it, it's easy to believe that, well, I can only obtain that sort of power if I'm chosen as the the one who will sort of rise above or the one who will like represent this community. Mm-hmm. So I think that is a very sad and unfortunate way to think of it because it's like, we have to be in solidarity with each other and creating our own systems. We shouldn't have to try to fight each other scrabbling for white approval, you know? So I think that's, that's very real. Um, but yeah, school is a race. This is made really obvious in some places. Like when I was teaching in Taiwan, the students would be ranked by number. So mm-hmm. literally there'd be like a list on the door of who is number one and who is at the bottom. So in some places it's like, oh, this is very apparent that you're framing education as like a race. But in my personal experience, I don't know. I didn't go to rigorous high schools. I know some Asian friends who went to these super competitive, ultra high achieving high schools where there are a lot of Asian students, for example, and even some white parents would sue the school to be like, the Asians are too good. Can you mm-hmm. give my child like raise their GPA? <laughs> but for me, my high schools were so unrigorous, mm-hmm. <laughs> like truly in a disturbing way. I think someone really needed to go in there and fix things. But <laughs> um, so, yeah, I don't it's something I know it, that exists, but that I didn't personally go through. Yeah. <laughs> Like the, uh, what were they called? Gifted and talented programs? Yeah, things like that. Yeah, yeah. I don't think my school had one of those. <laughs> As a follow-up question about academia, Ingrid and Vivian, I wanted to ask about the departmental politics you're describing. It, it was my understanding that Ingrid and Vivian were in different departments. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Even though their their main object was some um, poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, so Ingrid, I guess I would say she was kind of pushed into an East Asian studies department and she's really stuck in the archives. We usually see her, at least in the beginning, she's always looking through archives and her radical fluency isn't sharp as Vivian, who sees the world through an abolitionist and decolonial framework, which is really popular nowadays. I'm, I'm curious to know what you're saying about departments, language, politics, and knowledge Maybe not only within the two characters, but in the in, in the whole of the novel. I think, you know, a lot of when I write, it's from a fictional, mm-hmm. the, the point of view of story, right? Mm-hmm. And just building plot around character, building character around plot. So it made sense that because Ingrid's character bought into the model minority myth, right? And mm-hmm. she has no qualms with how... Xiao and Chao portrays Chinese American culture as just this very stereotypical teacups, koi fish, yin and yang mm-hmm. symbol. You know, she she's just fine with that. So it made sense that she would be in a department that is very orientalizing and fetishizes, you know, like chinoiserie mm-hmm. and just exotifies, quote unquote, the East, right? Mm-hmm. 
So that was how the East Asian Studies Department became born in my head as this space that was run by a very Orientalist man, Michael Bartholomew. Yeah. And then because I knew Ingrid was the polar opposite of Vivian and in the like earlier renditions of her character, all the characters were the head of the POC caucus. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... It, it made sense that Vivian, if she was going to be in academia, she would be in like a post-colonial studies department. Mm-hmm. I think when I started writing in like 2016, I don't know if I knew about critical race uh, theory departments or I think my knowledge of academia, American academia and stuff like that was still early 2000s. So I was like, post-colonialism is sort of the... Uh, quote-unquote antagonist to I guess something that would be very colonial which is orientalism Mm -hmm. um so yeah that's how I shaped those two Mm -hmm. departments and really what they mean to each character and how each character I think forms part of their identity around their departments Mm -hmm. oh and the east asian studies department there was only one asian faculty right I'm trying to remember. Yeah, there are very, very few. I'm trying to remember if I said in the novel there's only one, but the one we meet, the only one we meet is, yeah, yeah. Wenli Zhao. Yeah. Right. And it's when the department was going through um, upheaval. So I know you mentioned critical race theory, and I'm always thinking about how we talk about CRT now. And I'm especially thinking about Azumi, John Smith, and Michael Bartholomew, who I said they weren't who they projected themselves to be. Mm-hmm. And I'm also interested to know if you read the discourses on people like Jessica Krug, um, Rachel Dolziel, and others who pretend to be from racialized groups for social capital when you're thinking of your characterizations of those particular characters. Oh, Rachel Dolezal was a huge inspiration. I was so fascinated by her. Yeah. I mean, disturbed by her because it it was just it it was just so outrageous, you know, mm-hmm. what that not only she was passing, well, trying to pass as yeah. black by actually wearing blackface, using tanner and perming her hair, but then she was doing it in this cultural way by, you know trying to claim black culture and ascending to like the top of the NAACP and what was this like Washington one of Spoken, this yeah. right she fascinated me and an early version of John Smith was more like Rachel in that he claimed he believes in transracialism mm-hmm. and no matter how hard you push him he will just not admit he's white he's just like I'm Chinese I feel Chinese my soul yeah. is Chinese the way Rachel Dolezal to this day will not admit that she's white. But then it, I think it became more interesting for me to frame John Smith as the con artist, mm-hmm. like a troll where we, you know, we <laughs> we can't, yeah, his motivations are hard mm-hmm. to place and we don't know what his real motivations are, only that he's uh, a con artist, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah, so when the news about Jessica Krug came out, the book had or- was already done pretty much. I mean, it was like in edits. And so 
my agent or I can't remember. We were texting like, oh my God, did you hear about this? It's like the, what happened in the novel. <laughs> so it was that idea of, you know, life imitating art or whatever. And then when I was doing more research, I found, well, around that same time, there were more outings. There was like a professor at UC Davis who I think was outed for pretending to be Chicana. There was a grad student who was outed for pretending to be, I think, Middle Eastern or like a mix. Yeah. So there were mm -hmm. several that came out and I was really, again, disturbed and fascinated by, by it. And it, I, I did think it was really interesting that so many of them were hiding in academia. Yes. And speaking to, I guess, this anxiety about authenticity and who having claiming like expertise over something. Because for so long in this country, all these departments like East Asian studies, Africana studies, you know, Latinx studies, all of them have been dominated and run by white people who want to, quote unquote, specialize in these cultures that have nothing to do with them. And, and so I guess it felt like the shift in cultural discourse made these people now like nervous about being white and mm -hmm. being you know, and, and as so-called experts. So they were like, well, to mitigate this anxiety and to try to like boost my career, <laughs> I'm going to pretend to be the ethnicity of what I'm studying, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was, it was really surreal to see this unfold as I was writing yeah. this book. So that would have been in, let's just have Cruise. That was in 2020 or something, somewhere in the does that sound right? I think so, yeah. Uh, and, and Michael, the character of Michael, oh my gosh. So he becomes like Tucker Carlson. <laughs> it was just it's such a timely book, like the way that you um this how the scandal unfolded and how people reacted. It just seemed very real even though it's mm. fiction but it felt so real oh i appreciate that anna i was like hearing that <laughs> so i want to ask a specific question about a specific citation of roland bart's death the author where you included that in chapter 12 um there's a scene between ingrid and michael bartholomew in which he tells her that so he's reciting roland bart's argument all that matters is the text. The reader shouldn't care about the author's biographical details. So I teach the death of the author. And I think about this text so often because I see it used in many strategic ways. Mm -hmm. Like people just want to care about the text. Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder how you wanted to talk about that text in, in this fictional account of academic world. What are your thoughts on death of the author, specifically about the scandal that you're, you're talking about in, in your book? Mm. I mean, to me, it's, it's like a false, you know, what is it? I don't know what the proper terms, I don't know if it's straw man or whatever. I just think it's like <laughs> an empty argument. I think yeah. it's, it doesn't hold weight. I think it's sort of, you know, sounds clever. And I think when I first heard about it in undergrad, I was like, wow, that's so cool. It's like <laughs> killing off the other, just looking at the text. If you were studying English, and that was my major, like this was how literature was studied. I mean, if you talked about the 
biographical details of an author. It was for maybe background info, but otherwise we would not focus on it. We would sometimes not talk about it at all. And it was Mm -hmm. just, yeah, we treated texts as if they existed in a vacuum. And then it was only when I got older and got out of that mindset and started thinking about it, I was like, this makes no sense because I think every human is a product of their environment and time and the politics they've been fed, the discourse they've been fed, how they were raised, the people they're around were, you know, humans are little boxes of subjectivity. None of us can remove ourselves from our context. So I think Roland Barthes writing that is even an example of like the context he grew up in Mm -hmm. and the fact that he as a white man can make this claim. But I think every text speaks to the environment in which it was born. I don't think any of them exist in a vacuum. They're, They're like historical documents. You know, if you look at a text that was written in like the 1800s or the 1700s or 10 years ago, 50 years ago, like all of it is saying something about that, the time Mm -hmm. in which its author, you know, Mm -hmm. was living in. So, yeah, I think looking back on it now, I'm just like, this is so silly. (laughs) (laughs) Why did I think this was a cool, edgy, I don't know. (laughs) I was, you know, like 21. So I guess, yeah, but (laughs) yeah, now I just, I just think like very hard to hold water that argument. Yeah. And I see that death the author argument everywhere. I spend a lot of time on Twitter. That's how I get a lot of my news and discourse right now. And time and again, when people are arguing about, can you remove the artists from the text? I think Mm. it's used to like, you probably could. And then it gets a bit confusing when people talk about citational practices, you know? So it actually think it's really mm. convoluted it gets really convoluted and mm, um yeah so I, I guess people really haven't settled if it truly is death of the author <laughs> so, mm. so i just i love that you had michael I, i'm trying to speak so i don't spoil everything for the listener but i love that at this point ingrid knows what's going on and then michael is still trying to get her to see his way and I, I just thought that was a such a clever and amusing to me the use of Roland Bart as some sort of um authority to encourage Ingrid to keep doing the work that he wanted her to do <laughs> right yeah <laughs> it's a sneaky way to try and seem like appeal to you know, I don't know her intellect or whatever yeah. mm-hmm. it just shows sometimes yeah we can use academic texts or something to try and excuse something that if you take away the pretty language the yeah, convoluted yeah. language mm-hmm. uh, you're like this is just absurd what are you talking about mm-hmm. but if you dress it up it's like ooh, you know now it's hard to see through the bs and it's right. like give us some credit where mm-hmm. <laughs> we can see through it elaine i really wanted to connect maybe your depiction of Inger's relationship with steven and maybe Michael's relationship with his wife, with the piece that you wrote for the cut titled What What White Men Say in Our Absence. Both the novel and that piece reflect many of the events we've seen and read about in recent news, specifically regarding 
attacks on Asian women. Um, in that essay, you, you revealed in, in an early version of Disorientation, the protagonist is married to a white man. And then in the actual book, we, we know that Ingrid and Stephen are in a long-term committed relationship, but they're not married. They were engaged to be married. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really think of Stephen as a major character, but whenever he was on page, I felt like a big radiating tension when I saw the way, <laughs> they, the way that you wrote their dialogue and their interaction. It was just mm-hmm. it was very visceral to me. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you hope to capture during those moments with Ingrid? Because she seemed to excuse him early on when there were some, I don't even know if we call it microaggressions anymore, but those kind of moments that seem passive aggressive, but it's not. And later during his book tour, when she feels unease about, I don't know, about his relationship with Azumi, I suppose. Mm. Um, why did Ingrid feel so comfortable with him at first? Yeah. Yeah. Steven's character. He's <laughs> someone called him like the greatest villain in recent history or something. <laughs> Ryan Lee Wong. I was like, oh, I love this. I really wanted to write this type of villain. And <laughs> Steven, yeah, I think in the beginning where, like like you said, he seemed sort of negligible and, and just sort of annoying. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted his insidiousness to creep up on the reader. Mm-hmm. When he's presented to us, he's so harmless and sort of weak and mm-hmm. seems just incapable of abuse. But I wanted to show you know, being in an abusive relationship can take all different forms. Mm-hmm. And this is the one that Ingrid's in, which is emotional and manipulative uh, abuse. Mm-hmm. And um, why does she tolerate I mean, it's because she, the same reason she tolerates Xiao and Chao, mm-hmm. the same reason she tolerates Michael Bartholomew, because she does not question what's around her. She literally has blinkers on. And I think she doesn't understand what's problematic mm-hmm. about him. I, I don't think she's let herself question that. I don't think she necessarily has the language to to name it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's because she's at that that sort of, that point in her life in the beginning, you know, just accepting the status quo that she's able to be with someone like Steven instead of being like, oh, you're super annoying and (laughs) clearly obsessed with Japan to an unhealthy degree. Mm -hmm. I think that's how I wanted to show. I wanted to show it's frustrating to see her with him, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I wanted the reader to root for her escape from this relationship. Mm -hmm. So it's so funny that I knew I didn't like Michael, but with Steven, it's funny that you said someone called him the, the greatest villain ever, because you would think that Michael is the villain, but a lot of people seem to really dislike Steven. And, and he it's because Michael, you know what it is? Michael knows he's evil. <laughs> My, because Michael is, if you were to put him to a lie detector test and sit in that, like he would be like, yeah, you know what? I'm a power-hungry racist asshole. (laughs) I think he kind of knows that about himself Mm -hmm. deep down, doesn't give a shit, Mm -hmm. and is just like on his way, Uh you know, trying to climb to the top of the universe. 
Whereas Steven, I think what's so frustrating and annoying about him is he thinks he's a saint. He thinks he's done the work. He thinks he's a feminist. He thinks he's anti-racist. He thinks he's an ally to the Asian cause. Right. And if you were to sit him down, put him a lie detector test, I don't think we could get him to admit that he is toxic and abusive. Yes. Like he's so frustrating because in his head he can do no wrong. Not only that, he sees himself as a victim. Mm -hmm. And I've seen certain white people who've see themselves this way. Like Stephen, you know, says, oh, I was bullied as a kid because I had glasses. Yeah. Um, and I literally heard a white man say this and, you know, as as proof that he's been discriminated against and yeah. doesn't have white privilege. So mm-hmm. I think, yeah, Stephen is um, indicative of this sort of very frustrating white liberal mm-hmm. that believes they are above reproach Mm-hmm. And that they have nothing left to learn. Yes, because you know? in that exchange with Ingrid, he was inverting her criticisms to paint her as the aggressor. I just... <laughs> yeah, and then kept say- kept insisting she's having a mental breakdown. <laughs> yes! Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Wait, I just want to tell you how much I love disorientation. I didn't think it was a breezy read, but I... I immensely enjoyed it. Oh, that's really wonderful. So my last question for you, if you can share, are there any current projects that you're working on or thinking about working on? Yeah. So Penguin Press, when they bought the novel, they also bought the short story collection at the same time. So yeah, that was in 2019. And the story collection already existed. Like I had finished it. Now um, I do need it you know, go back and revise some things. I've added some new stories. But what I'm excited about is that that collection is actually mostly speculative and genre. So there's a a horror story, a story with a Chinese ghost. There's like a fairy tale. There's a sci-fi virtual reality story. Like I just... I love writing in different genres, different voices, and I'm really excited to sort of leave this <laughs> setting of academia, which I think is such a specific setting. Mm-hmm. And I'm excited to kind of break out of that and return to these stories where the the worlds are all very, very different and excited to show readers this other side of me as a writer and it's called where are you really from yeah i should mention that that's what it's called <laughs> i really love the title and you said it's like speculative short stories not all of them i'm trying to think i think at least half of them are i'm trying to remember the sort of the realist there's like maybe mm, four realist ones but i think the rest of them are all speculative yeah well then well, i'll have you come back on and we can talk about your short story collection i'll keep up to date with your work and i'll have you back on so elaine thank you so much for your time and thank you again for writing such an extraordinary book and i'm really happy that a lot of people i think everyone i've seen on twitter really likes your novel so <laughs> thank congratulations you Anna. on everything thank you for reading and for 
caring and investing, you know, your time and resources and thinking of so deeply about issues in the novel. It really means a lot. I'm so glad. Thank you again. I'm wishing for better days for all of us. Me too. Take care of yourself. Thank you for listening. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at AnnAnnaDroid. I'd also like to thank Mariah Behrens for creating the cover art for my podcast and my partner, Matthew Sample, for his music and edits. See you next time.